Disclosure, the information in this podcast is educational and general in nature and does not take into consideration the listener's personal circumstances. Therefore, any and all information presented in this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for specific individualized financial, legal, or tax advice. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making any decision. What's up, guys? Ben Keedy here again with the Wealth Crypto Podcast and have episode 36 for you this week. So this one is with Catherine Kirkpatrick. She is the chief legal officer of SIBO Digital, which is obviously a part of the larger SIBO. And Catherine and I talk about a lot of things. We obviously cover the current regulatory sort of framework or lack thereof in the United States and internationally. And then we also cover fraud. Uh, we get into a bunch of topics. It was a great conversation. So hope you all enjoy it. Thanks. And we're live. Catherine, what's up? Thanks for joining me. <laughs> Thanks, Ben, for having me. Yeah, yeah, I'm really excited. So um, maybe for the listeners, just give a quick little brief overview of who you are, who you're working for, and then we can jump into all the fun stuff that's going on. Oh, so much fun in crypto. Never <laughs> a dull moment. No. <laughs> Um, well, my name is Catherine Kirkpatrick, and I'm Chief Legal Officer of SIBO Digital. And I've been with SIBO Digital only since April. And prior to that, I was actually General Counsel of Maple Finance, the DeFi protocol. Mm-hmm. And prior to that, I was a partner in private practice in a large global law firm, King & Spaulding. And my practice was actually white collar and government investigations. So I defended large entities in U.S. government investigations, including crypto market participants in SEC investigations. So lots, lots to talk about these days on that front, for sure. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, this is a random sidebar, but I recently, have you watched The Lincoln Lawyer on Netflix by any chance? Um, No, because I tend to hate lawyer shows because... (laughs) I get upset when they're not accurate and all of the sure. lawyers are far too attractive. Yeah. With the exception of Bill, I really enjoyed Billions, but yeah. everything else, I kind of stay away from lawyer shows. Yeah. It, it, uh, <laughs> I, I just finished it last night and it, you know, it's good, but I mean, I have a sales background. Like I know nothing about law. So um, you'll probably have to, uh, you know, talk down to me just a little bit as far as the legal stuff goes. <laughs> Um, I can I can keep things somewhat rudimentary sure. for yeah. the non-lawyers in the house. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh that's probably good for most of my listeners too. Um but yeah, the, I uh I saw that in your background when uh just doing the research for the podcast, I saw that you did a lot of defense for um uh you know, various types of businesses as going up against the SEC and I was like, "Oh, this is great because I just kind of got a little bit from the show." So, um anyway, there you go. Super yeah. random. But anyway, so you have a background. Let's maybe start at the beginning, I guess. So you were in, you know, defense, defending, was it financial services businesses mostly, or was it uh, a bit everything, or where where was your focus there? Definitely financial services was the focus. Okay. And after I became partner, I co-chaired the firm's financial services industry group. So okay. a lot of it was defense of big banks. Sure. Brokers, asset management, and everything yeah. under the sun, a lot of fraud, market manipulation, mm-hmm. money laundering, yeah. uh, sanctions, et cetera, kind of all of the kind of white collar 
sure. fraud related charges, you name it. I've covered it. Same with regulators, a lot of different okay. regulators, definitely SEC, DOJ, but also um, the Office of Foreign Assets Control and the National Futures Association and the CFTC. So sure. it touched a lot of different avenues there. Okay. So you're the expert in navigating uh, financial services and government <laughs> conflicts, I guess. Um, where did crypto come in? Like how, how, when, where did you first kind of discover this thing and what led you to Maple and then to SIBO? My favorite part of any conversation with people in crypto is their crypto origin story. Like yeah. what brought you here? It's such yeah. a good icebreaker because... Yeah. Sometimes there's similarities, but I feel like everyone got here on a slightly different path. Sure. Uh, my, mine was, frankly, I started falling down the rabbit hole intellectually on my own time, you know, having nothing to do with the work. Yeah. I started listening to crypto podcasts and started learning a little bit more about blockchain, you know, the traditional entry point. Yeah. And just thinking through the use cases and started nerding out, started reading a lot about it. And after learning more about it, I realized very quickly that there was a serious dearth of scholarship pertaining to the legal issues in crypto. And, you know, this was years ago. Yeah. And even now, if you Google insider trading, you'll run into a thousand different articles analyzing every aspect of insider trading precedent and law and the major cases. But if you Google your average major legal issue as it pertains to crypto, there, there's just a very limited bench of analysis. Mm -hmm. So I realized that, and I like writing. I think it, it's an, actually a great way to kind of pressure test your own understanding of a particular issue. Mm -hmm. So I started writing a lot of articles and what we call client alerts, you know, okay. analyses that we would disseminate to clients and prospective clients on a niche issue sure. on various crypto issues. Uh, and that just kind of generally raised my profile professionally. So that led me to billable work. Yeah. First, actually, for, for TradFi entities and things like acquisition due diligence into crypto so they could understand crypto and giving the same continuing legal education present presentation to a lot of my firm's public company clients. Sure. Kind of, what is a wallet? What is a wallet? <laughs> what is blockchain? Sure. <laughs> what yeah, is yeah. Bitcoin? Yeah, yeah. And that that moved on to then representing crypto market participants. And I just sure. ate it up. You know, I, yeah. I, I got to a point where I said, I love this. I love this work. Every matter and every every time I write, I just get more and more excited and I want to learn the tech. Uh, more than just the academic issues. And right. there was no better way to do that than to go in the middle of DeFi. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just, just go work for something. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, I mean, maybe let's just jump into it. So like, obviously, the talk of the year, I guess, has been, well, I guess, fraud, and then sort of a uh, spot ETFs are kind of the two main things that I think everyone's kind of zeroed in on. What, uh, where where would you prefer to start? Like, what is um, what's what's most interesting to you right now? Is it FBF or SBF in jail as of today, yesterday, or uh, or you know this ETF race that we're seeing? You know, both. I think there's actually, interestingly enough, less to say on the ETF race. So maybe we yeah. start there. Okay. I. You know, I think the interesting part, I've had a number of people ask me about that because SIBO, 
is in that race. Yeah. Uh, not necessarily SIBO Digital, but we have five filings, which is very exciting. And it's obviously something we're really excited about and want to sure. engage in. And I think the amazing thing from my perspective is, you know, Bitcoin spot ETFs, in my mind, are a nice entry point. Like when you think yeah. about NFTs, yeah, maybe somebody who knows nothing about NFTs, they'll go see a Marvel movie and there will be a pairing, like get your free Marvel NFT, download a wallet, and that will be their first entry point into the broader crypto ecosystem. For sure. There's all these NFT brand partnerships. I feel a little bit the same way when it comes to ETF and institutions. You know, they can get yeah. more comfortable in the abstract engaging with ETFs and then yep. they'll understand more about what all of this is once they're doing R&D into ETFs. And then that will bring them, hopefully, to things like trading crypto or sure. you know, learning more about different tokens, learning more about tokenization, et cetera. So it's a, it's a really great entry point for institutional engagement. And that is really a major litmus test for kind of more broader crypto adoption. Yeah, I think, uh, I think a couple of things there. Um, I love the point about an easy entry point because I think crypto for the longest time, like user interface and downloading wallets and what's cold and what's hot and what's in between and how do you actually send something and where's my public and private? Like the, the UX is just... Yep intimidating for a lot of people right um but from like a investments perspective like i have a wealth background and a spot etf would be incredibly useful for the vast majority of financial advisors out there because they don't want to mess around with you know managing wallets for their clients or anything like that they don't want to generally have clients self custody or do their own thing because they can't mm -hmm. really charge a fee for it right um so in, like, at least for, I think, a lot of retail wealth in the U.S., having a spot ETF would certainly be a positive price signal for, you know, Bitcoin, Ethereum, and I think overall the rest of the industry. So um, that easy on-ramp, I think, is super important. And, uh, and it's funny because a lot of people think it's ironic that this is a major growth point for crypto because in so many ways it's the antithesis of some of the yeah. purest tenants of <laughs> yeah, crypto. Yeah. So, you know, it's Highly yeah. centralized, for yeah. example. Super regulated. But, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But come on. I love crypto. And I absolutely recognize and appreciate a lot of those major purist tenets. You know, sure. Financial privacy and the democratization yeah. of finance and access to the underbanked, etc. Ability to send your money whenever, yes, wherever. Right. 24-7. Fantastic. Yeah. And you know, I actually dealt with a matter years ago that was related to the Swiss pulling the peg on their currency. So uh -huh. I remember vividly when the Swiss finance ministry said, we're not going to pull the peg, we're not going to pull the peg. And then I think it was 24, 48 hours later, they pulled yeah. the peg. And it was a black swan event and many people lost yeah. an enormous amount of money. That's a perfect example of what crypto is trying to avoid. You don't have one entity being sure. able to pull the peg or have that yeah. aspect of control. Yeah. But that being said, people need a way to engage. They need something to make this space. You said intimidating. Oh, it's yeah. the perfect word. People are very intimidated by crypto. They're intimidated by the tech. They're intimidated by the terminology, which I I'm think sure. is hilarious. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, uh, like, you you know how, what derivatives are? Yeah. 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 
<laughs> yeah, you, you got derivatives. You understand yeah. payment for order flow. You can understand DeFi. Trust me. Yeah. <laughs> Just- yeah. It's uh it's funny. Like I uh I actually just recently had an experience with one of the banks that I use. I was trying to send a wire to Schwab for some T-bills. Oh. And um it would, you know, they made me go into the bank. I had to sit there for 45 minutes and pull out my ID and sign some forms just to move some money that should, you know, arguably take like seconds online. Um yeah, and it was it just was so frustrating. It reinforced like this is why I like you know, the DeFi, you know, crypto space, because I have total control over what I, I, what is mine, you know, that's mine. <laughs> um, but uh, where was I going to go with that? Um, oh, so man. much efficiency, so much control. Yeah. I love that you had to physically go into the bank too. I mean, oh, how I ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, it was, I, I couldn't, I couldn't believe it. It was just so frustrating. Yeah. And my wife was just like, calm down. And I was like, I can't, yeah. it shouldn't be this way. I've seen the light. You don't understand. Yeah. Um, <laughs> they don't know. They don't know. <laughs> oh, that that was my point. So um, about entry points and getting into crypto, like for people like us and people who are interested in the space, like people will learn to, you know, manage their wallets. How do we do this? You know, what do we do? Right. But for the vast majority of people, like they don't want that. So like, um, yep. Like an NFT, like your example, like Coinbase's, uh, what are they calling it, um, on-chain summer thing where they've got all the corporate NFT yeah. partnerships going out. It's, I mean, yeah. I, could, I could care less about a Coca-Cola NFT, but, um, you know, it's like an easy widget for people to engage with. And I think that's, you know, I think that's pretty underrated. A hundred percent. And you need a way to get people comfortable. And no one is going to get truly comfortable with crypto until they have a wallet, until they're actually if not trading, but actually engaging and experimenting with the space and experimentation mm-hmm. in terms of, okay, maybe buying 50 bucks worth of Bitcoin or having an NFT. Great way to just get that baseline confidence to yeah. engage more. Yeah, I love when financial advisors do that. For example, you know, my financial people, they don't, know anything about crypto, but they're trying to learn. And I have definitely spent a fair amount of time with, you know, wealth managers just want to know academically. Tell me a little bit more. How do I get started? What do I read? And I love to hear that because they're now seeing some of their ultra high net worth or high. Getting a little feedback here, Catherine. Can you hear me okay? Oh, yeah. Sorry about that. Can you hear me? Yeah. Yeah, we're good. It was probably just the internet connection for a sec. But um, maybe rewind like 15 seconds. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I was just saying, I talk to financial advisors or wealth managers every once in a while, including my own who don't do anything in crypto. uh, And that's partially due to my TradFi husband, uh, who is a crypto skeptic. I'm still working on (laughs) years after being full time in the space. Yeah. He's gone from kind of, he originally thought it was tulip bulbs. So now he's just like vaguely skeptical. So I've moved him along. Uh, But I love to see that level of interest with wealth managers or financial advisors because they're getting interest from their ultra high net worth clients or, you know, high net worth clients or their average clients saying, I want to engage 1% of my net worth. I want to play with some of my 
net worth or some of my funds and they want to be equipped to at least give them a starting point. And crypto as an ecosystem would be happy to take 1% or 5%. Oh, and yeah. that number is growing. Even so just, yeah, you bring your, it, exactly, your small, bring two, it your on. small 2% sleeve would yep. be a huge thing for crypto globally if you had, you know, 50% of wealth advisors making that recommendation. Massive, massive. Yeah. And yeah. that's what's so interesting. I often talk to people as a starting point when I was educating people about crypto when I was in my firm. I would go economics 101. Bitcoin has all the attributes of a successful currency. If you look at just the you know, economic sure. basics, yeah. with the exception of... <laughs> a clear set of regulatory guidelines. Yeah. But if you add that to the equation, which that will happen at some point, we can talk more about when that's going to happen. And that's the only thing that is the significant barrier to entry for something that offers diversification at a minimum on top of, you know, some of the other things we've mentioned, but a number of other things we could talk for the entire hour about the the beauty of crypto. Yeah, maybe that's maybe that is a good segue to kind of the regulatory side of things. So where I guess, I don't know, how do you think about it? Like from your job at SIBO Digital to just kind of generally, what do you think about where we are? Like, are we getting close to, you know, it kind of seems like we're getting some cracks in sort of the SEC's wall. Um, but who knows, you know, right? Uh, yeah. yeah. Where, where do you guys, you know, when you talk to clients? How do you guys kind of walk them through this? So it's interesting. I love DeFi and I think Maple's a fantastic organization. The tech is extremely compelling. But one of the problems with DeFi right now is a lot of the players are just kind of hiding from the regulators, you know, especially the entities that aren't doing anything wrong. They're just kind of, I I hope I'm not popping up on the regulatory radar. I'm going to try to wait this out until everything's fleshed out. One of the things that was really compelling to me about SIBO, there were two things. One, I see the future of crypto as the intersection of crypto and TradFi. And yeah. a lot of crypto natives would disagree like with that. me they don't you know, like that. vehemently. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm a, I'm a bit of a realist. Yeah. So I really do think, especially crypto winter, bear market, you have the capitalization that exists within TradFi. You have the experience in building a legal risk compliance infrastructure. There are a lot of major advantages to having some gray hair, which a lot of crypto lacks gray hair. I went from being, you know, consistently, consistently the youngest person in every room when I was at my firm, because, you know, I went straight through college to law school. I made partner fairly early. I was always the youngest person in every meeting. Then I went in-house in crypto, still in my 30s, and I was consistently the oldest person yeah, in yeah. every meeting. Yeah. But the second, the second major advantage of SIBO and, and joining SIBO Digital is SIBO has a fantastic relationship with its regulators. You know, we are a trusted entity or trusted group of entities, obviously, SIBO Global Markets yeah. and all the subsidiaries. We take compliance extremely seriously. We value that relationship with our regulators because we work hard at, you know, always doing the right thing, frankly. Um, And I loved the idea of being at a place where I could have ongoing transparency with the regulators. I could have a dialogue. I could engage uh, both, obviously, as part of my role. But, you know, to some degree, every every, uh, 
chief legal officer or lawyer in crypto represents somebody in crypto who is whose parent hopefully counteracting some of the perception that some people have of people in crypto. Well, yeah. So you want to put your you know right foot forward, your best foot forward. Yeah, we need more Brian Armstrongs rather than SBFs, obviously. Um, exactly, or John Palmer's the yeah. president of Cebo Digital. But oh, yes, yeah, I know exactly what you yeah, mean. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I actually connected with John too before uh, uh, this podcast. I just reached out and said, "Hey, super stoked to talk to Catherine." So, um, but, he's fantastic. Uh, yeah, John is fantastic. Yeah, yeah. There's probably a future podcast with him on here too. So. Good. Uh, good. So where, like, uh, as far as, you know, the regulatory thing, can you maybe just kind of summarize, like, where we are and where you guys think we need to go and kind of what may be inhibiting that? So a couple things. Right now, you have an environment where there is a bit of a partisan divide. So oh, yeah. a lot of the Democrats and the commission, the SEC, believes that there is no lack of clarity and the law is clear in that this entire industry or asset class uh, should be subsumed under the securities laws, yeah. uh, which obviously were are now almost 100 years old, but yeah. that's neither here nor there. Yeah. And others, whether it's legislators or regulators, believe that there is a massive lack of clarity that needs to be plugged through legislation. No matter where you land, I think that there's definitely some confusion in the U.S. And we've seen the result of that by projects just going offshore because you have a lot of projects where they want to operate in a jurisdiction where they can get explicit explicit authorization from regulators to offer all of these products. And there's no uncertainty yeah. or gray zone that exists, obviously, in the U.S. right now. Yeah. So what are we seeing? We're seeing a lot of enforcement and a lot of litigation, and that's that's not going to calm down anytime soon. We're going to keep yeah. seeing that. Yeah, we have seen pretty much every agency you know, putting the SEC aside. You're seeing additional resources being devoted to investigating crypto market participants from pretty much all all government agencies: DOJ, the IRS, the FTC, yeah. etc. So there's the state. There's an enormous amount of scrutiny. And as a result of that, and obviously as a result of the events of 2022, you're going to see more and more cases. Sure. Uh, difficult, difficult to keep up with all of these cases, yeah. especially yeah. the ones levied uh, against exchanges. You know, I'm spending a lot of time reading complaints, analyzing those complaints, understanding the implications of that and how it informs SIBO Digital's legal strategy. Now, it's important to note that all of the litigation, it's not law. It's not law until there's a resolution, sure. until there's precedent. But if you're participating in this space, obviously, it is important to understand and acknowledge and factor in what your regulator or any of the regulators, CBO Digital's regulator is the CFTC, not the SEC. But it's obviously very important to understand the SEC's perspective, especially when you're engaging with assets that may or may not come under the SEC's jurisdiction. Sure. Yeah. So what you know, what does this mean for Cebo Digital? What does this mean for the broader ecosystem? I think we would love some market structure legislation. <laughs> sure. Yeah. yeah. Well, didn't, me uh, tomorrow, please, please. Didn't, uh, <laughs> wasn't the House Financial Services Committee putting something to the CFTC like a couple of weeks ago that was uh, I. I I saw the headline. I didn't yeah. think it. it's exhausting to keep track of it, yeah. frankly. So 
to yeah. date, you now have more than a hundred bills that have okay. touched crypto in some form that have been proposed. Almost none of them have gotten any traction. Now, some of the bills now that we're seeing, there are a few that are getting traction. There are, there are a few that have passed through the house. And I, you kind of divide them into two chunks. One, there's a stable coin bill. I'm going to put that yeah. aside for, the, for a minute. And the others are all kind of market structure crypto bills. Mm-hmm. Now, the market structure crypto bills, we've seen bipartisan market structure crypto bills, which is very exciting. Um, and we've seen a lot of different kind of bites at the apple with these bills. Some give, you know, whole hog jurisdiction to the CFTC. Some divide it between the SEC and CFTC and let them kind of figure it out for themselves, which I'm a little skeptical how that's all going to shake out, but sure, we'll see. Yeah. Uh, you know, so they're, everyone's trying to get creative. Everyone, luckily, when these bills are proposed, uh, they're soliciting feedback and comment from crypto market participants. So Cebo Digital is looking at this legislation, is yeah. giving our two cents. In DeFi market participants are looking at it. Everyone has kind of a different say. This is good. This is bad. This is terrible. This is existential. And that's part of the challenge here. As you know, there's NFTs, there's DeFi, there's CBDC, central bank digital currencies. There, yeah. I mean, I can keep going and going. And all of these things are apples and oranges and bananas and pineapples. So it's really hard to put it under one umbrella piece of legislation. Yeah. And what's or even harder, it yeah, some it's older getting, legislation like the Howey test. <laughs> uh, it, oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. yeah. Let's talk about the harm. Um, no, and and the issue is now these bills are moving out of the house, which is incredible and very exciting very recently, but I'm very dubious. And most people in crypto policy are very, very uh, pessimistic that they're going to pass through the Senate. Uh, You never know what's going to happen. They could get attached to a larger vehicle, but I don't think we're going to see any crypto market structure bill pass for a while now. And I I can only hope that I'm going to be proved wrong. We are likely going to see a stable coin bill before you see a market structure bill. So we'll take that, but that's really not going to affect the, the broader ecosystem as as more of a kind of a comprehensive bill. Interesting. Um, yeah, the, I mean, zooming back out to the politics, it's horrible that the industry got politicized going into 2024, which, uh, you know, looks to be like a cluster all around. But um, oh, 100%. <laughs> but it's uh, it is super unfortunate that it got. Um, politicized the way that it did because yeah i think you're probably right like nothing will happen until we get a new administration you know based on whether it's red or blue you know maybe the industry goes one way or another which you know just seems so strange because going back to what you mentioned earlier about um people moving offshore like a lot of the people i talk to everyone's like strategically avoiding the u.s in a lot of ways um and that's going to hong kong singapore you know, Brazil, um, you name it. Cayman. The islands, UK, the EU. Yeah. A lot of startups are starting in Cayman, BVI, Bermuda. You know, the EU had this landmark legislation, MECA, passed recently that's going to be implemented in 2024, 2025. And the beautiful thing about MECA is it gives entities kind of a European passport. So a lot of fluidity to operate within the EU. And you have a lot of entities that, you know, G20 countries that have enacted comprehensive crypto legislation with a designation and a regulator and a specific 
know, guidance. You can list this. You can list tokenized assets. You can list futures. You can, oh, this license also encompasses custody where the yeah. U.S. it's different licenses for each facet of your business. So you you definitely see why people are going offshore. Obviously, SIBO has a very long history of, you know, a domestic yeah. Yeah. place. We, we want to be here in the U.S. serving U.S institutional clients and foreign institutional clients. So we, I, I mean, obviously I'm, I'm extremely excited about any positive development or any development that would add to the suite of legislation and precedent that I have to use as guidance on a go forward basis. So when, um, when you have clients approaching you guys about what to do, um, how do you, like, how do, how do you walk them through like the concerns of, you know, either being a U.S. domestic or, you know, an international type uh, investor with you guys. Like, um, how, how do you navigate that? I definitely get those calls more and more frequently. And I always start by reminding them that I'm not their lawyer and I'm not their yeah. financial advisor. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I'm not yeah. giving them legal or investment advice. Yep. But yep. it is interesting. A lot of people, there aren't that many lawyers in this space. And there aren't that many lawyers with gray hair, meaning, you know, I've practiced for, oh my God, I don't even, almost 15 years. And I'm, you know, have a crypto native background. So I think people are desperate for some kind of academic analysis from the legal and policy perspective to to add to their understanding. You know, you have a lot of people who are extremely savvy with crypto or extremely savvy with investing in TradFi, but it's almost like trading FX, you know, there's just this unknown variable that could completely upend your book. Yeah. And I think what I tell them is, you know, they have to understand their own risk exposure and their own risk appetite. And there are just going to be unknowns in this space, but there's also volatility in this space, which obviously can create alpha. There's a lot of different entry points in this space. There's ways to defray the volatility. Like, I think that it's hilarious when people talk about how trading crypto is so dangerous and risky. And I'm like, hey, remember when Netflix stock was down in excess of 80% at one point? So, you know, there's, I think sometimes when you take the altcoins out of the equation, the altcoins or shit coins or whatever you want to call them. Like and you're game, talking like about GameStop the- or AMC, is that what you're talking about? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You know. Yeah. And when when you're talking about more institutional engagement, there's ways to become informed. There's ways to understand your risk appetite and plug in there. You know, mm-hmm. are you dealing in margin? What kind of tokens are you dealing in? Are you looking more at investing in the blockchain ecosystem more broadly? And Stevo Digital is somewhat unique because obviously we're dealing with sophisticated crypto market participants, but we're also dealing with TradFi market participants who are just just getting their feet wet in crypto. And they'll come to us as a really trusted market participant. Mm -hmm. So are the people that are engaging with us, it's, it's it's definitely kind of all different walks of life with respect to crypto. And I think we love to see that because we love to have both crypto partners that we trust and also TradFi partners that we trust. And we are there, you know, ready and waiting arms open when we have more entities that want to participate and want kind of a trusted partner 
who is going to work with them in a way that, you know, you're not going to get embroiled in our investigation because we have what is hopefully the appropriate risk and legal and compliance infrastructure in place. Yeah. Do, uh, do you guys generally notice like more institutional kind of interest, like maybe this summer relative to, you know, six months, 12 months ago? You know, I think there's definitely increasing institutional interest, especially on the investment side of things. Now, obviously, there's decreased interest in things like institutional DeFi, Mm -hmm. Uh, increased interest in peer-to-peer DeFi trading. You know, you saw a huge flow to Uniswap after the Binance and Coinbase uh, suits, but that was retail. Yeah. But institutional DeFi, a lot of entities are getting scared off from playing in a space where you don't have appropriate anti-money laundering and sanctions uh, risk structures in place, for example. And that's not as scary to retail, but that's really scary for sophisticated institutions because they understand that's an existential risk. So I see, you know, I think we were going to see more institutional engagement with entities that have that kind of, I can assure you that here's our policies and procedures, or for example, oh, I want to deal with broker-dealers because of their registration and their licensing. We know that they're subject to the Bank Secrecy Act. We have money transmitter, money service business licenses from the state. So we are regulated under the BSA, full AML infrastructure here. And that's what I think we see is more institutional engagement with trusted partners. But it is kind of funny. One note on that is I always said, if you look at the pre-crypto world, And I had definitely a lot of experience in in the private sector here where I would defend an entity in a U.S. government investigation. And the entity was desperate that everything be handled, not just pre-indictment, pre-disclosure, you know, make it go away. We are a public company. The impact that the disclosure of an investigation has on our stock, you know, we can't can't even quantify it. You know, we'll pay you millions and millions and millions. It's better than this disclosure. Yeah. And it wasn't just the impact on the stock. It was like, we have to disclose a DOJ investigation. We have to disclose an SEC investigation. We will lose prospective partnerships and prospective yeah. deals. Yeah. That, that hasn't really happened with Coinbase. So post-crypto <laughs> world, it's, it's very different. You know, you're still seeing partnerships with Coinbase. I would say Binance is a little different, but... You know, generally, just from the academic sense, I think a lot of institutions and entities are willing to play in this space because it, there's a lot moving. You know, there's a lot of unknowns. No one really knows how this is going to shake out as opposed to your traditional investigation into a TradFi entity where everyone knows how that's going to play out. Yeah, it's kind of weird to think about reading the tea leaves in that way where, yeah, Coinbase has all these corporate partnerships for their base, you know, layer two. Um, every, you know, they're all super interested in NFTs. They don't seem to care, I guess, that, you know, Coinbase is going toe to toe with the SEC over, uh, unregistered securities. Right. Um, yep. allegedly and, unregistered. Yeah, yeah, well, you, sure. You know. yeah. I mean, it's <laughs> it, like, and it's just, it's kind of hard to not from where I sit, just as an observer from home, um, like seeing this SEC suit kind of get rolled up and this like overall lack of trust in institutions. Um, it it just appears, I guess, overtly political. And for what reason, you know, it, it seems kind of dodgy. Um, 
I don't, I don't know. Like it, it's just really strange to just kind of observe when everyone else seems to be getting on board. Like why dig your heels in so hard on this? It's, it's tough to kind of wrap your head around, but then, you know, same time you see BlackRock finally file for a spot ETF. And I was listening to some bankless podcast and there's this Bloomberg analyst named uh, James Seifert. I'm pretty sure he's an ETF guy. And he said that BlackRock has lost only one ETF application of like 500. So like, if you kind of play that out, like the world's largest asset manager getting serious about a spot Bitcoin ETF, like, you know, my betting money would probably say that they're a pretty good indication of future approval at some point. But, you know, it's just very convoluted. Yeah. Although you never know in this space, right? (laughs) But I think a couple points on that. I have a bit of a unique perspective on the regulatory front because when I was a partner at King and Folding, I would say in excess of 90% of my fellow partners in my practice were ex regulators, you know, ex senior Mm. level DOJ, senior SEC. And so I have a very rosy view of regulators because I had so much respect for my partners in that I genuinely think the regulators, even the SEC, which crypto loves to hate, they're doing what they think is right. And intellectually, I can separate it. I can certainly agree to disagree on a number of fronts, but I certainly don't think that this is all a political vendetta or, you know, what you read about on crypto Twitter. And the other interesting thing is it's become a bit of a partisan issue, but some of this is also along lines of age. Uh, You'll see some, some more, you know, warm and fuzzies from younger Democrats. So that's quite telling and and makes me quite bullish on the space in the long term. Yeah. On the, on the ETF front, I do think it's funny that everyone just thinks it's going to get approved because it's BlackRock. Yeah. I absolutely agree with you that if you look at the statistics, they've, you know, it's, a, it's obviously a very sophisticated entity that does its homework before any engagement. Sure. But I don't think the commission is just going to roll over because it's BlackRock or because it's SIBO. I would love to have yeah. that much power, but yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, and obviously BlackRock and SIBO, very trusted entities with a long history of again, proving ourselves to the regulators and proactive regulatory mm-hmm. engagement. But I think there still needs, from the eyes of the SEC, and obviously I'm not inside their head, but I think there's still work to be done on this front. So maybe it's a question of not if, but when, but I don't think we're going to get approval tomorrow, for yeah. example. So what, uh, with all that in mind, what do you think the industry crypto can do to put itself in a more favorable light? I think that the most impactful space right now is crypto policy. So it's a really interesting dynamic. And this is another partisan thing where you have some people saying, oh, all this crypto money is influencing legislators. And mm, I actually think crypto is somewhat underrepresented when you look at it compared to other industries and the the policy voice. (laughs) There's a lot of the pot calling the kettle black. I feel yeah, like, and it's like, exactly. okay. <laughs> well, well said, Ben. Well said. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, okay, I, I guess think, you've never looked in a mirror before, but okay, sure. <laughs> I think crypto does really well when it talks about use cases. You know, Polygon yeah. rolled something out recently that was a, it's a fantastic, massive repository of crypto use cases. Okay. And I, you have to check it out. I, I highly recommend it. 
Um, Rebecca Reddig is brilliant. Uh, she's their GC and she has just kind of shepherded this whole initiative and has done a lot of great policy work. And I think the thing is, it's the way that I get people over the hump when it comes to crypto. I don't talk to them about Bitcoin or trading or I talk to them about things like wine fraud, you know, and and blockchain use cases. You know, you put all of the high-end wine market on the blockchain. So every time Chateau Lafitte releases a case, it's there on the blockchain. No one can ever use, you know, no one can ever print labels. And obviously that's one of a very random example, but you talk to someone who loves wine and and doesn't understand crypto. They, you can see the wheels turning in their heads. Yeah. And more importantly, like what's going to resonate in Washington, we are at an absolutely critical juncture for the U S and what is really going to change the landscape. It's not all of this litigation. All of this litigation, you're going to have a lot of cases, a lot of precedent that muddies the water. Uh, You're going to have a lot of things that might pertain specifically to one token or the other. But the SEC has been very careful to say facts and circumstances as it pertains to each token. So even if XRP wins, Ripple wins the whole kit and caboodle, the SEC can always go and move forward with everything else and distinguish XRP from all other assets. Mm-hmm. So precedent is just going to create a lot more complication, but it's really not going to fix whatever confusion exists now. And what is going to fix that and what's going to be most impactful for crypto? It's policy. It's it's getting yeah. your name heard and your voices heard in the legislation that's ultimately going to govern things. It's appropriately diversifying, whether that's U.S., offshore, you know, asset, type of engagement. Those are the, the things that I think the world should be the the broader ecosystem should should really be considering and focusing on right now. Yeah, the, who's uh, another bankless podcast? The CEO of Masari was on, and he was talking about oh, yeah. his effort to create like a advocacy group. Uh, you know, m- nonprofit slush fund for crypto advocacy. Uh, I mean, it's what everyone else does. So I guess, you know, we got to do it too. But um, uh, yeah, I mean. Bring it on. Bring it yeah. on. You know, we'll take it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I, I love Bankless, by the way. I My two favorites are Bankless and Unchained. And I love podcasts generally because I think it's a great way for people who just don't know that much to become more broadly informed. You know, you put on a crypto podcast when you're in the car, when you're running and you kind of get more comfortable with the terminology and how to think about certain things. And it's again, much easier than sitting down and reading a book or an article. Yeah. I haven't read a book in years. So (laughs) (laughs) everything is through audible um, or podcasts. There you go. There you go. Yeah. Um, And shoot there. It's, I don't, I don't even know. I don't even know. Should we move to the, should we move to the F word or fraud? Uh, because I know that was one of the things you wanted to talk about, which, yeah, um, (laughs) I mean, my general take with all the fraud of the last year and a half or so was it was all CFI, basically, you know, um, it, uh, I think that explains it beautifully. And again, going back to the pot calling the kettle black, like there's fraud everywhere. To I definitely feel crypto is definitely 
taking it on the chin and being unpopular for the wrong reasons type thing. Um, it happens, I guess. Like, you know, 2008 was banks. 2022, I guess, is crypto. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I generally just kind of view that those were CFI frauds that had lack of process, controls, compliance, risk across the board. I I knew I liked you, Ben, and <laughs> you're 100% right. That was what was really frustrating being in DeFi during 2022, yeah. because yeah. for the longest time, a lot of the press and a lot of other avenues, there was a massive misperception that 2022 was driven by DeFi when it was absolutely driven by CFI. Yeah. And not just CFI, you had all of these entities that were really mimicking traditional financial services, but using crypto assets and thinking that that model immunized them from regulation. And crypto's not proposing that. Crypto's not proposing that it just operate like a bank using crypto with no rules. That's yeah. the whole idea of DeFi is it's fundamentally different. It's Oh, I think I lost you for a sec. Um... Oh, no. And apart from FTX, but a lot of that kind of dynamic creating fundamental issues. And then the cherry on top that obviously drove the exposure of what was otherwise, frankly, what sounds like just a sociopath running a large organization that had a number of issues, fraud being one of them. Sure. Yeah. Drug use being another. It's like uh Yeah, I mean we could we could pick a uh, approving Slack expense or approving expenses by a Slack emoji, you know? <laughs> oh, and yeah. It's, uh, my, that was maybe my favorite. I mean, I love Slack and I love the occasional emoji and, uh, you know, there's yeah. nothing wrong with that, but but there's money involved, people. Let's, let's yeah. clean it it's, up a little bit. I, uh, so my wife's on maternity leave, right? And uh, we've got the new baby at home and I walked out just to get some coffee this morning and she's watching uh, Wolf of Wall Street. <laughs> and, oh <laughs> yeah <laughs> and it's the scene where uh leo's talking about their gross commissions for like the week and it was like 30 million dollars off pink sheets where they're just defrauding people and then they have uh he gives 10 grand for the chick to shave her head and then they have in the band and the strippers <laughs> and everyone just starts yeah. going crazy and i immediately thought of ftx to a degree <laughs> like it's like that was kind of probably what it was like for a while. Just a smaller group, I think. A hundred percent. It was, it sounded like a complete and total circus. And a lot of these entities are the same way. I mean, look at Celsius's risk infrastructure or lack thereof. And the interesting thing about both of those is after many years of defending entities and a lot of my work that I loved was we would defend these entities where you had a lot of really great, highly ethical people working really hard. Mm -hmm. And there were issues emerged because maybe you had rogue employees or maybe you just had a big gap in somewhere that was not these individuals fault, for example. So, you know, white collar crime, when you're talking about an entity, it's, it's easy to paint with a broad brush, but there's a, a wide span of kind of guilty mens rea there, state of mind. Right. With, there is one pattern though. However, when you look at entities in trouble and often it is a top down culture. If there is a top-down culture of compliance, 
the entity is usually broadly healthy. Yeah. If there is a top-down culture of SBF and, you know, cowboy Celsius, shit. Yeah. It, it, just cowboy shit. You look at a lot of these entities and you look at their senior management and a lot of them operated in this sphere where no one was telling them no. They yeah. were completely ignoring their lawyers. Um, you know, I, I, you could not pay me enough to be in a position where my senior management didn't even hear me out. Uh, obviously, you're going to agree to disagree with the business from time and time and again, or you're going to see things differently, or you might have to get comfortable with a higher degree of risk as legal, or sure. the business might have to meet you in the middle. But the dynamics from what you see at those organizations, again, using Celsius and FTX as an example, obviously the. the the circus master was running the show yeah. <laughs> and there was a top-down endemic culture of at worst sloppiness or, or at worst wrongdoing at best sheer sloppiness. Yeah. And that is really telling, I mean, any investor, I think you want to feel comfortable with your senior management, not only from are they capable, but are they kind of a common sense moral person who is someone's actually watching them, there are checks on their behavior. It's absolutely essential, especially in kind of a space like this, where there are a lot of unknowns, a lot of volatility, maybe not as much oversight, depending on the entity. Yeah, I uh, I remember looking at Celsius a couple of years ago, and I was just looking at the yields that they were throwing up online, and I was like, fifteen to eighteen percent, like for for what, like. And it just like, and I started Googling, I looked through disclosures, I couldn't find exactly what they were doing. And yeah, I've told this story before on the podcast, but like, I have enough of a financial background to be like, okay, there's a risk trade here somewhere. I don't see it. And I guess I had enough intuition just to stay away. And thank God I did, because I think it was like six months later that it collapsed. Um, and a lot of people just didn't know that. You know, like no, that and you were you were not taught yeah. ever. So, um, and you were sophisticated enough to do the diligence and to you, you knew how to look under the hood. The yeah. issue with a lot of these issues, or a lot of what we saw in 2022, is you had retail investors that didn't know what questions to ask and didn't know where yeah. to look, and took the statements being made at face value. And that's really sad to me because the other key when it comes to crypto, the purest tenant of crypto and of DeFi and of other aspects of crypto is transparency, radical yeah. transparency. So yeah. if you have that radical transparency, then I understand the we are unregulated argument because theoretically anyone who's engaging with you can see all of your financials, can see all of your activity, et cetera. There's nothing to disclose. Yeah. But with CFI, that absolutely wasn't the case. You had investors taking Alex Mashinsky for his statements at face and they didn't have any ability to check the veracity of those statements and that's exactly why regulators and regulation exists to protect the investors who can't look under the hood yeah and that's again my opinion kind of here is where i think at least the regulators and then congress too you know in the senate like they have been asleep at the wheel to a degree and allowing things to kind of manifest the way that it did ultimately harmed a lot of people, right? Um, my view, I guess, is that, you know, they need to figure out a way to actually legislate 
clear rules so that these things don't happen to normal people because I mean, sure, like uh, some celebrities lost some money with FTX, right? Sure, Tom Brady can <laughs> Tom Brady can throw a million or two bucks at crypto in exchange for some promo stuff, and Kim Kardashian can do the same, and whatever, it doesn't hurt them, right? But at normal everyday people who see these things and are, I mean, one thing about the CFI stuff is it was marketed very well, and yeah. you know, for better or for worse, people do follow that stuff. You know, um, absolutely, absolutely. And what is the litmus test? Again, I think if a retail investor doesn't really know what's going on and doesn't have the ability to know what's going on, I've talked about this in the context of what is decentralization. You know, there's there's no easy way to to gauge when an entity is decentralized, and a lot of crypto entities are trying to become decentralized because they think that's a regulatory silver bullet. Yeah. There's there's no clear definition. I can tell you that, FYI, for anyone who doesn't understand that, which is why it's not a regulatory silver bullet. Yeah. But I do think a major aspect of decentralization is radical transparency. You know, you're not fully decentralized if anyone engaging doesn't completely see their flow of funds. You know, where is my money going? Then what is it being used for? Then where is it going? If if they can't actually trace that, you're certainly not decentralized. And the whole major tenet of decentralization, uh, it rests on the fact that everyone is on an equal playing field. You know, you don't have a centralized party or centralized individuals who have more access to information and access to alpha. So I think that's something that's really important to think about when you're talking about the you know, kind of collateral damage that a lot of retail experience as a result of a lot of the disasters of 2022 <laughs> yeah yeah it's getting into the inside trading thing too it's kind of like the access to information part and also just being diligent and well researched i think is a fuzzy area right like because mm-hmm. I, I know lots of people who got airdropped you know big projects and then those things turn around and marketed well make a shit ton of money it looks a little strange um but, you know, if you do your due diligence and yeah, I mean, it's it's a it's a gray area for sure. And it's not just crypto. It happens in regular financial services, too. But um, I don't know. I, yes. I'm kind of rambling here. But one of the biggest tropes I hate from people is uh, do your own research. And it's like, well, sure, maybe the information's there, but I don't know how to. I'm a normal person trying to diversify a little bit. I don't know how to go on chain and look at what's going on on Ethereum for all these different wallets. Like, and the presumption that that is your responsibility, I think is, I don't know. I, I don't like that generally. Um, I think that's absolutely right. And no one has the capacity to come through all these white papers and go on and look through the tech, for example, because you have a lot of different risks in crypto, much like you have risks in traditional financial services, to be clear. But you have, I mean, I always thought of it as there were three big major kind of areas of risk in engaging with any crypto entity. You know, one is your classic kind of uh, audit, for example. When I say audit, I mean smart contract audit, I, I also put like hack risk into that category. Like, what does the tech look like? Yeah. How comfortable? How comfortable and how good is the tech? Has it been battle tested? Right. So that's one huge area of risk. Two. What is your kind of existential risk? Like, what is the risk of engaging with an entity, and could it 
Could it be facilitating the flow of dirty money, even either no. you know inadvertently, but with sanctions that can be a strict liability offense, whether they intended to or not, they could get in trouble. Um, or on purpose, maybe they're you know maybe they're aware that the North Koreans are are sending money through, and then you as an individual don't want to be exposed to that degree of risk, particularly as an institution. And then three is what we've been discussing: the just general garden variety regulatory risk. Yeah. You know, maybe you're you're investing or looking at an entity that might come up on the radar of the SEC or another regulator or the IRS. So you don't want to be involved in any of those three buckets of risk. And how can you do your due diligence in all three buckets? It's very difficult, even in a wholly decentralized entity, unless you can get on the phone with the general counsel or the chief legal officer and walk through all of those things. And not everyone has the ability to do that. (laughs) Well, yeah, crypto, at least crypto Twitter, the trope is always do your research is you're responsible, max libertarian type stuff. And sure, fine. But like, it's also a weird place because like nobody expects you to know about like wildcatting for oil and gas to go and invest in, you know, like, or like the operations of how Google Cloud or Microsoft Cloud works, like nobody cares. It's it's use cases and value is really what people are trying to interpret. Whereas I think a lot of crypto is so hung up on tech in a way that use cases, and I'm curious about that Polygon thing that you mentioned, so I'll definitely check that out. But um, yeah. I mean, from a sales guy perspective, like use cases and value is what people understand. So people don't really give a shit about, you know. The zeros and ones that created this thing. So, yep. I love the point about, you know, you're right. I'm not going to West Texas and visiting the rigs to see how much they're actually. I mean, that's ridiculous. Yeah. You you have to take certain things at face value, especially when you yourself are trying to diverse in the broader space. You're not just making one investment or you're not just buying one token. You're trying to appropriately diversify in in this asset class. So nobody has the ability. Nobody has the time. And there's a limited dearth of expert advisors in this space, too. Uh, It's very difficult to find financial advisors who specialize in crypto and who can talk with real expertise and understanding about all of the facets that I just mentioned and beyond. So I think that's that's appropriate to call that out. Yeah. I mean, your average wealth advisor should never be expected to know that much about a given yeah really at all i mean all the advisors i know in my day-to-day are focused on planning right because investing is so commoditized now and do you really think you're better than blackrock or bally osney or you know uh franklin templeton name your name your manager like oh uh, yeah who spend 24 7 thinking about these issues and doing the very research and you know watching the body language on the earnings you know in the earnings call or you know that sort of thing that you won't even know to do as a retail investor. Yeah. It uh which I guess to circle it all back to our conversation is like clear regulatory guidelines give rise to good products which benefit everyone generally. Good products, responsible entities. It's something that and again, this is one of the reasons why I'm I'm very happy to be at SIBO Digital because I take a lot of pride in the fact that we're contributing to a positive you know, well-run ecosystem. Sure. Uh, we are, we're taking good care of our partners and our clients. And we take a lot of pride in making sure we're doing things right before we list new products. We want to feel good about it on 17 different levels. Sure. And yes, that means we're more conservative than many other 
entities in the space. But right now, that's the place that feels comfortable for us and is appropriate for us. And, you know, in some ways, there are sacrifices there in potentially losing market share to other entities who are willing to take those risks. But there's also advantages of being an entity that's taking a bit of a slower pace and a more thoughtful pace and not having to deal with, you know, being in the heart of the, the regulatory storm. Yeah. Uh, we're uh, yeah, you know, safe in our cabin on the sidelines. On a, for on better a, sharp, or for on a sharp ratio, risk-adjusted basis. <laughs> Over a market cycle, you'll probably do better than the people who are running and gunning, just chasing, uh, you know, headlines and cloud and stuff. So, yeah, yeah, um, we shall see, Ben. But I, f- I feel good about it. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's it's a fun place to be. Like for for better or for worse, it's always like a top conversation. Um, people certainly don't really care what muni bonds are up to, but people do care what yeah. they're up to. That, that is true. Crypto, I mean, it's always something every few years. Crypto is currently that something for better or for worse. Yeah. And that's that's good. That's exciting. Again, one of the things that makes me very optimistic is I am seeing more, Cebo Digital is seeing a lot of institutional interest. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the nature of the space, you have a lot of entities where they're, even if they're not actively investing or engaging, they're thinking through R&D in this space, or they're looking at tokenization, or they're looking at investment or acquisition. And that's just one way of sticking their foot in the water. And in my experience, most of the time when people put their toe in the water of crypto, they get in the bath. They keep going. So (laughs) yeah, yeah, and and not everyone, but most people I know, if you really give it a fair shot, and you really learn about it and learn about the potential and all of the things that you and I appreciate, the benefits of the ecosystem, you'll get more excited. You'll want to learn more. You know, you're the mouse eating the cookie and you want a glass of milk. So that's exciting. You know, I'll take your questions and I'll take your R&D and I'll take your thoughts. And you don't have to talk about us to your investors. You don't have to talk about how much money you're spending in crypto, just as long as you're doing it behind the scenes. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. There's uh, one of my... Yes, mentioned to me like um, about crypto and just kind of momentum in terms of just an asset class. Like it's the first real new asset class in I don't know how long, right? Um, and if you're an advisor, you could take a risk on two percent of a portfolio. If you get it wrong, it's two percent. Like you're diversified, yeah. you'll up for it somewhere else. But if you miss it and it goes a hundred x, you know that might be a problem, right? Absolutely. I I think that kind of gives, it should give people confidence to, to, you know, even if it is just the fear of like the FOMO trade and just not missing it. Like, you know, if you missed Apple in the nineties, like that's a bummer, (laughs) you know? (laughs) Yep. Yep. um, And, And FOMO is a big thing in crypto. And I appreciate that. And that's, again, not a bad thing because you're seeing FOMO on the institutional level. Yeah. You know, you're seeing tried by entities who are aware or there's a splashy press release about investment into a crypto custody business or an exchange or a clearinghouse. So you know that that direct competitor, at the very least, if they're not involved, they're then looking at why they're not involved. And oh, sure. that yeah. exploration is essential and it's only going to get more intense and it's only going to get better as long as we have more regulatory clarity which again will happen it's just a matter of time this ecosystem is really young it's really really early and i think people forget that 
Yeah. And I think it's exciting to be at the beginning of a long maturation. You know, I am constantly talking to my three and five-year-old about <laughs> crypto. I mean, well, not exactly about crypto, but sure. they do have a Berenstein Bears book that's called Dollars and Cents and talks a lot yeah. about checks. Yeah. And whenever I read that book, I just completely go off on my own tangent <laughs> and I replace the checks with a yeah. digital wallet. So sure. you know, by the time they're, <laughs> yeah. they're 12, I'll be like, what's a check? Where's yeah. my, where's my, the hardware yeah, yeah, wallet, yeah. you know? So, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, my daughter's not there yet, but soon enough we do have, uh, what did my wife get her? She got her, uh, you have blockchain for babies. It's a good one. We, yep. Yeah. <laughs> that's, yep, that's actually a good it. one. Oh yeah. Look, and yeah. here's her teething device too, that I was just finishing with. See, yeah. That's perfect. <laughs> yeah. Um, let's see anything else you want to touch on before we wrap it or. I think that was a great conversation, Ben. Um, yeah. I think we touched a lot. So uh, hopefully uh, you you got what you needed or, or I oh, was able sure. to share some alpha with your listeners, but it was, it was great to meet you. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Oh yeah, absolutely. And welcome back anytime. We'll definitely have to do this, uh, you know, within the next year for sure, because things change fast yep. in our industry. So. There will be updates. There yeah. will be updates. But God, we could do this in a week and things would have changed. Oh, yeah, know. no, no. But congratulations on the baby and yeah, very good to meet you and, and happy to stay in touch. Cool. Well, we'll leave it there. Um, but yeah, welcome back anytime. Thanks, Catherine. Thanks, Ben. Yeah.